the National Archives podcast series, Treaties in the National Archives, a treasure house of diplomacy, presented by James Cronin. The title of this talk is A Treaty in the National Archives, a Treasure House of Diplomacy. And what I'd like to do is establish the treaties that we have, why we have them, and then go through their form, which is a rare opportunity really, since we quite often get details, and you'll see in books a lot of the texts of these treaties, but it's very rare to actually be able to see them, to see the way they're laid out, to see their seals, the skippets containing great seals. They're absolutely wonderful things. So, as well as going through the diplomacy behind it, we'll also get nice opportunities to view 20 treaties, which I'm afraid is my own favourite 20, the 20 that grip me the most. And hopefully you'll find some of them also interesting, if not as interesting as I do. First of all, I'd like to talk you through the four main types of treaties that are held. And these are treaties of marriage and alliance, such as the 1386 Treaty of Alliance with Portugal, or the Treaty of Windsor, and the 1863 marriage between the Prince of Wales and Princess Alexandra of Denmark. There are also pacifications, such as the 1783 Treaty of Peace with America and the 1902 cessation of hostilities with Boer War forces that ended the Second Boer War. Truces, such as the 1802 Treaty of Amiens that led to the brief lull in the French Revolutionary Wars, and some say then, when hostilities recommenced a year later, started off the Napoleonic Wars. And finally, mercantile intercourse and agreement, such as the 1854 Convention of Commerce with Japan and the 1855 Treaty of Friendship and Commerce with Siam. Within the medieval period, there are lots of series. The principal one in which the treaties are maintained is E30, running roughly from 1191 to 1624. These are the Treasury of Receipt diplomatic documents, ranging from the reigns of Henry I to James I. And there are 400 original treaty documents, and the documents in this series are all kept in secure storage, so written permission would be required to see them where they're not available as digital links. Very few at the moment are. In the 13th and 14th centuries, it was common for important documents to be deposited in triplicate in the Chancery, Exchequer and Wardrobe. Although the main record store was centred in the Chapel of the Picts, in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey, the records now in E30 might be kept in secure custody in any of the places, including the tower, which together made up the treasury of receipt of the Exchequer. Those which related to the marriage certificates and divorces of Henry VIII were kept in the treasury in St Margaret's Gatehouse, Westminster. The documents were kept in bags, presses and chests, and within smaller containers including forces, hampers and coffers. Retrieval was possible through orderly placement, a designated hierarchy of chests intended for documents relating to particular kingdoms, principalities and lordships, for documents of particular immediate importance, pictograms, on both chests and on the smaller containers, and the compilation of registers and inventories and other finding aids. The series E30 includes many of the surviving original treaties, ratifications, powers, letters of credence and notorial exemplifications of formal documents which were deposited for safekeeping prior to the reign of Charles I. This is the Treaty of Calais Chest. It's maintained in Exchequer Series E27-8. It's a rectangular coffer of oak pinned with wooden dowels with iron strap hinges, a hasp lock plate missing and an iron handle on lid. The dimensions are roughly 95 centimetres by 24 by 22. It was originally created to hold the Treaty of Calais, a ratification of the Treaty of Bretigny. The Treaty of Calais itself is in E30-172, with many related documents of the same date, which must have been kept with it in the chest. The inscription on the lid reads Pax Factor Calais Interreges et Regna 
Angli et Francie, die vicesimi quarto, peace made at Calais between the kings and kingdoms of England and France on the 24th day of October 1360. The shields on the lid include those of France, England, the Black Prince and the Dauphin, the eldest son of the King of France. The chest has been dated by tree ring analysis to around 1360 when the treaty was signed. So we know it was constructed precisely for this purpose. The Treaty of Calais marked a brief truce in the conflict between France and England, now known as the Hundred Years' War. I have to say, I have pinched this text from a lovely site which you'll find on the website under our treasures. This war was started in 1337 when the English king, Edward III, laid claim to the French throne. It did not end until the English lost control of Gascony in 1453. At the time of the treaty, Edward III held a great deal of land in France. His military campaigns had been successful. His son, nicknamed the Black Prince because of the colour of his armour, had captured King John II of France and imprisoned him in the Tower of London. In the negotiations leading to the treaty, the French agreed to pay a ransom for John of three million crowns, equivalent to Edward's income for five years, quite a substantial sum. They also agreed to hand over huge tracts of land to the English, amounting to half of the Kingdom of France. In return, the English agreed to release the French king and Edward gave up his claim to the French throne. When it came to be signed, however, Edward's agreement to give up the French throne and John's agreement to give up land to the English were taken out. Within the early modern period, records are maintained in the series SP 108. By the 17th century, the right to custody of treaties and related formal documents was disputed with the secretaries of state. We have the formation of departments for secretaries of state for home and secretaries of state foreign. SP 108, ranging from 1579 to 1780, contains 556 original documents. Once again, documents within this series are kept in secure storage and you require written permission to see them. So you can see how it's nice to actually have these available and to be seen. They contain various diplomatic records, including protocols, ratifications and renewals of treaties, preliminary articles of treaties, declarations by Great Britain to uphold treaties, and agreements between foreign powers the appointment of British and foreign ambassadors to enter into negotiations and to make treaties. The records are arranged alphabetically and chronologically according to the country to which the documents refer. So treaties for Portugal are held in SP 108, 386 to 394, and come directly after those of Poland and before those of Prussia. Within the modern period, this becomes a little more complex. They do like to complicate things. Protocols of treaties are maintained within the series FO93, ranging from 1775 to 2003. There are 257 volumes. This series is arranged by countries or geographical areas, each being allocated a subnumber to the series, e.g. Africa Central is FO93-4 and has nine sections within it. So that FO93-4-1 is Africa Central Treaty of Protection 1890 and other appertaining treaties would then be slash 2 to slash 9 within that. Ratifications of the treaties are maintained in FO 94 from 1782 to 2005, and there are 3,269 boxes and volumes. A substantial amount of negotiation was going on, and all of these are recorded and maintained. Stages are gone through so that in the event of hostilities, in the event of anything happening, one can always refer back to specific documents the ratifications are arranged by country. 
The date given for FO 94-1-949 is the date of the foreign ratification, but from FO 94-950, the date of deposit or exchange of the ratification is given, instead of the date of foreign ratification, unless otherwise indicated. Additionally, the place of signature is given from FO 94-950 onwards. This is what places sometimes quite a bit of a problem when people are looking for treaties, because you'll often know a treaty by the generic place in which it was signed. So there are plenty of treaties of London, treaties of Paris, etc. One thing is it's difficult to distinguish between them. So therefore, a treaty is quite often known by what it represents instead. It's a treaty of alliance or a treaty of peace. And then between whom it is. And they were more interested in that rather than where it was signed at various stages. The other problem is when people are referring to treaties, the actual text and what is signed and agreed upon initially is the protocol, and that is the treaty that people would usually refer to. The signatories who have been given the right by their various governments to sign these treaties then go back to the governments to agree it, and that's what forms the ratification, which is an illuminated, beautiful version of that treaty, but the FO93 in this period is generally what is regarded as being the binding thing. Should any changes be made, that will be reflected in a new treaty and a new ratification. So it's always the protocol of the treaty that is the one that one would look for. What I'm going to show here, however, is largely ratifications because they look so fantastic. So you'll also find that quite a number of things being ratified a year later are one year out of sync with the date that one would usually think of for the treaty. Things get more interesting where you have multilateral treaties between a number of government and a number of countries and states. For this reason, a series was set up, FO949, to deal with multilateral treaties, and this ranges from 1907 to 2002, of which there are 1,099 volumes. The series contains original multilateral treaties and agreements with foreign and Commonwealth countries. There is also a series specifically for European Community Treaties from 1953 to 1997, which is FO974. It ranges from 1953 to 1997, and there are 1,272 volumes within it. However, and all things change, documents will no longer be transferred into the above series, all of the above series. Instead, they will be transferred into FCO 85. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office Treaty Section, at the time part of the Records and Historical Department, reorganised its holdings and arrangement of treaties and ratifications in 2000 to 2001 to incorporate a new database. The former distinction between European community, multi and bilateral treaties was ended and the ratifications were held as part of the same series. As a result, various earlier Foreign Office treaties, the ones we've referred to, were closed and all new treaties coming into force from February 2001 will be found in this series. Should the Lisbon Treaty ever be fully ratified by all countries, then a deposit will be made in FCO 85. Before I actually take you through to the treaties themselves, I'd like to take you through the stages of the treaty. We've mentioned one or two of them with the protocols and with ratifications. For earlier treaties, there were certainly also other parts, especially full powers. The formal stages of a treaty required the appointment of representatives of each power of the Crown, in the case of England, and of the King, Prince, Lord or other community with whom the agreement was to be made. These representatives required proof in advance of their appointment and that they had full power to make an agreement, a document known from later practice as the powers or full powers. Powers were sometimes issued in more than one text to be used and displayed successively and allowed envoys increasing discretion or flexibility in the achievement of their objective. The protocol or articles of agreement is the end of the successful negotiation resulting in the drawing up of articles 
So this is the treaty generally authenticated by the seals and signatories of the potentate and negotiating parties, either interchangeably or together. The ratification is the formal acceptance by the sovereign or other power, and this was made in the form of a ratification generally authenticated under the great seal and sometimes the signature of the power concerned. The sovereign or powers affected must record formal documents, in, in formal documents their approval of what has been arranged. However, things to be aware of, not all three stages survive. At the time of evolving practice, not all of these stages were necessarily represented in every agreement, and this is not merely an accident of preservation. It must not be supposed that all three types were invariably preserved, or indeed that all stages were actually carried out. Sometimes one may only get the actual protocol or articles of agreement and nothing else. Occasionally we'll find that all we have is a ratification and we don't actually have the protocol. Exchanges of agreement. Documents such as treaties and their ratification were exchanged between the principal parties so that versions containing the seals and signatures of English kings and their representatives will mostly be found where they survive in foreign archives. What we have, those parts received on behalf of the Crown, and thus mostly authenticated and acknowledged by the seals, are the seals and signatures of the other parties in the agreement. I'd like to take you on to the beautiful form of some of these treaties, and we'll deal with seals, silks and skippets. The bit diplomatic colour for seals was generally red, and this is certainly true in the case of the seals of the plenipotentiaries. However, green and natural were frequently used, and in the case of great seals, we find appended to the ratifications some fine bronzes and blacks, as well as lead balls from the Vatican and Spain, and gold seals. The gold seals, more often than not, were crafted by goldsmiths rather than being true seal impressions. The size of private seals decreased in marked manner in the post-medieval period, and plenipotentiaries then take to applying the impression of their signets opposite their signs manual. The dimension of the great seals did not decrease, and many had both obverse and reverse. They were therefore always appended to the ratifications, generally on silk laces, cords or ribbons. The silks are cords and tassels attached to the seal of the treaty. These are at their most ornate in the ratifications where the great seal is used. The intertwined cords often represent the colours of the country, e.g. yellow or gold, and black and red for Belgium. But not always. For example, the convention for Portugal was to have silver and green seal cords. Denmark, yellow and green, Netherlands, red and gold, rather than the red, white and blue of their flag that had been introduced in 1572. What we're also going to see is some very fine skippets. These are the boxes in which the wax for the seal is embedded, or more frequently, a two-sided seal enclosed loosely. Early examples are in turned wood, such as in E3709, the provisional treaty for mercantile intercourse between Maximilian, King of the Romans, Charles, Prince of Spain, and Henry VII, also known as the Treaty of Bruges of 1508. Or in plain timplate, such as in E30-1119, the ratification by Philip, Prince of Spain, of certain articles supplementary to the Treaty of Marriage between himself and Mary, Queen of England, in 1554. These developed into elaborately decorated silver or silver gilt skippets. And in this image we can see an example of the second great seal of Edward III. Dating from 1337, it's maintained in DL10-281, and this particular example is on green wax and is a particularly fine version. Next to it, one has the gold seal of Alfonso X, King of Castile. You can find it with an E30-1108 because it's within a charter ceding rights in Gascony. 
And here is a skippet of 1839 in FO 94-54. It's the skippet containing the Great Seal of Belgium attached to the ratification of the Treaty of London of 1839. So now we come to the 20 treaties themselves. The one I'd like to kick off with, and apart from one where it's out of order because I can't read properly, these are all chronological. So we begin in 1837 and Portugal, the ratification of the Treaty of Perpetual Alliance between King Richard II and King John, King of Portugal, held in E30-311. The treaty itself was signed in Windsor on the 9th of May 1836. It's the oldest alliance by which this country is bound, and Portugal is Britain's oldest continual ally. The treaty, more commonly known as the Treaty of Windsor, was a product of the Anglo-Portuguese alliance of the 13th of June 1373. As a result of it, English warehouses were established in Oporto and cod and cloth were exchanged for wine, cork, salt and oil. Philippa of Lancaster, daughter of Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt, was to marry King John I. The couple's youngest son, Enrique, Prince Henry the Navigator, paved the way for Portugal's golden age with his sea voyages of discovery. This is a single parchment membrane in Latin, signed El Rey, with a leaden bulla with armorial design repeated on the reverse and appended on laces of red and white silk. The treaty has been invoked a few times in the last century, in even the last couple of centuries really, because during the Peninsular War, from August 1808 to 1814, British forces under the Duke of Wellington helped to defend Portugal from the French invasion and following this to liberate Spain from the French yoke. Portugal fought on the Allied side in the First World War in accordance with the treaty. In the Second World War, Portugal was neutral, but the treaty was invoked by the Allies to establish bases on the Azores. And finally, during the 1982 Falklands War, the facilities of the Azores were again offered to the Royal Navy. Treaty number two, we move to 1527 and France, the ratification of the Treaty of Amiens. To actually be found, because it's a compilation of a whole series of treaties, all signed at the same time on the 18th of August, 1527. I can find them within E30 between 1109 and 1113. And I'm giving just two examples of illuminated membranes of which there are many within here. The several treaties were to do with peace, alliance and trade. The examples shown here are the ratification by Francis I, King of France, of the treaty with England relating to Italian affairs and the privileges of English merchants in France, and the ratification by Francis I of the Treaty of Perpetual Peace between England and France. The Mercantile Treaty is distinguished by images of trading ships, while the Treaty of Peace bears the image of Francis I. Both show the French arms consisting of three fleur-de-lis on a blue background below the crown of France. We move to 1605 and to Spain, and this beautifully illuminated treaty is the ratification of the Treaty of London by Philip III. We can find it in E30-1705. The Treaty of Perpetual Peace and Alliance between Philip III and the Archduke and Archduchess of Burgundy, Albert and Isabella, on the one part, and King James I, King of England, on the other, is how this treaty is formally known. Quite a mouthful, more commonly known as the Treaty of London, because the negotiations took place at Somerset House. The negotiations themselves are sometimes known as a result of the Somerset House Conference. The treaty ended hostilities between England and Spain and concluded the 19-year Anglo-Spanish War. This version was signed and ratified on the 15th of June 1605 at Valladolid. Here we have a further example that is better than my poor photography would allow, so this is a lovely image library example. The English delegation consisted of Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury, then Secretary of State and James's leading minister, plus four others, Charles Blount, 1st Earl of Devonshire, soldier, 
Thomas Sackville, first Earl of Dorset, Lord Treasurer, Henry Howard, first Earl of Northampton, Lord Howard de Walden of the Sinkports, and Charles Howard, first Earl of Nottingham, Lord High Admiral. Spanish delegation, this was led by Charles de Ligne, Prince Count of Arenberg. With him were Juan Fernandez de Velasco, 5th Duke of Frias and Constable of Castile, Jean Richardot, President of the Brussels Privy Council, Alessandro Robida, Senator of Milan, Louis Veriken, Audiencer of Brussels, and Juan de Tachis, Count of Via Mediana. The Anglo-Spanish Treaty signed by Philip III is now in the museum in a case at the back on the left. So I would invite people attending here to have a nice look at what is an absolutely beautiful illuminated treaty. Treaty number four, we move to 1668 to nine and to Portugal with the ratification of the Treaty of Peace with Spain by the mediation of Great Britain. It's held in SP 108-387. It was concluded at Lisbon on the 13th of February 1668 through the mediation of Britain and subsequently more commonly known as the Treaty of Lisbon. Within it, Spain recognized Portuguese sovereignty after the Portuguese Restoration War and Portugal, in return, ceded Ceuta to Spain. The cover is of crimson velvet with the royal arms and corner pieces in silver. There's a silver skippet engraved with the royal arms, embedded within it a white wax seal, impressed bearing the same arms, and silver and green seal cords with tassels. For Treaty 5, we move to 1713 and France, and the Treaty of Perpetual Peace and Friendship, maintained in SP 108-72. Dated at Utrecht on the 11th of April 1713, and better known as the Treaty of Utrecht, this was negotiated between the Bishop of Bristol, Keeper of the Privy Seal, and the Earl of Stratford for Great Britain, and the Marquis d'Uxelles and Sieur de Ménager for France. The treaty was the conclusion of the peace conference at Utrecht, which ended the war of Spanish succession declared in 1702 with France and Spain. Its chief provisions were the acknowledgement by France of the Protestant succession to the British throne, the recognition by Britain of Philip of Anjou as King of Spain, and the cession to Britain of Gibraltar, Minorca, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and territory around Hudson's Bay. It is bound as a paper book of 124 pages with seal ribbons. It's in Latin, signed Bristol, Stratford, Uxelles, and Minagier, with four armorial seals of red shellac applied over ribbons of pink silk. Here's where we need to return a little bit back in time. Treaty number six is 1703 and Portugal, full powers to negotiate the Treaty of Commerce. It's found in SP 108-389. Signed at Lisbon on the 27th of December 1703 and ratified by Portugal on the 30th of April 1704, this is known more commonly as the Methuen Treaty. It's a military and commercial treaty and was negotiated by John Methuen, Her Majesty's ambassador to Portugal at the time. It gave Britain access to deep water ports near the Mediterranean, allowing Britain to more effectively deal with the French naval base at Toulon and to draw Portugal away from depending on France to defend its shoreline. It also stipulated that English wool should be exported to Portugal free of duty, while Portuguese wines imported into England would attract a third less duty than wines imported from France. As a result, the treaty became more commonly known as the Port Wine Treaty. It's probably why I like it so much. Within the representation, there is a silver skippet bearing an image of flowers and a child borne by an eagle. It's on green and silver seal laces. Treaty number seven, 1783 America, the Treaty of Peace, which may be found in FO 93-8-2. This is the definitive treaty of peace and friendship within America. Signed on the 3rd of September 1783 by John Adams, Benjamin Franklin and John Jay on behalf of America, 
and David Hartley MP on behalf of Great Britain. Again, with quite a mouthful as a name there, better known as the Second Treaty of Paris. It ended the American Revolutionary War, or the American War of Independence, and was ratified by the United States on the 14th of June, 1784. Within it, there are ten articles, summarised as follows. Article 1, acknowledging the 13 colonies to be free, sovereign and independent states, and that the British Crown is to relinquish any claims thereon. Article 2, establishing the boundaries between the United States and British North America. Article 3, granting fishing rights to United States fishermen in the Grand Banks off the coast of Newfoundland and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. 4, recognising the lawful contracted debts to be paid to creditors on either side. 5, the Congress of the Confederation to recommend to the state legislature to recognise the rightful owners of all confiscated land and provide for the restitution of all estates, rights and properties which have been confiscated, belonging to the true British subjects, loyalists. 6. The United States to prevent future confiscations of property from the Loyalists. 7. Prisoners of war on both sides are to be released and all property left by the British Army in the United States unmolested, including slaves. 8. Great Britain and the United States are to be given perpetual access to the Mississippi River. This was rescinded after the War of 1812. 9. Territories captured by America subsequent to the treaty to be returned without compensation and 10, ratification of the treaty to occur within six months of the signing by the contracting parties. We'll see why I've listed all 10 when we get to the Boer War, because we inflicted 10 articles of surrender upon the Boers at that point, which I do think was probably, I wonder whether they had this treaty in mind. Looking more closely at the signatures, you can see that we have the beautiful flowing signature of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams and John Jay, and the scrawl of the MP David Hartley. It is absolutely beautiful. I wonder how long he'd spent practising that. Rather reminiscent of Queen Elizabeth I's very ornate E. For Treaty 8, we move to 1802 and France, the ratification of the Treaty of Peace in FO 94-77. I've included this as my example of a cessation treaty. Known as the Treaty of Amiens, where it was signed on the 27th of March 1802, this treaty temporarily, for one year, ended the hostility between Great Britain and France, Spain and the Batavian Republic during the Revolutionary Wars of 1793 to 1815. The British negotiations were undertaken by Anthony Merry, minister and interim ad interim in Paris, and Joseph Bonaparte, brother of the Emperor and future King of Spain. And the ratifications were signed by Robert Jenkinson, Lord Liverpool, then the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, and Napoleon Bonaparte as First Consul. It's on black velvet, embroidered with gold, silver and coloured silk, and bearing the letters PF, Patrie Française. On round panels of white silk, it bears a silver gilt skippet engraved with a seated female figure representing the Republic. And there are gold, silver and grey seal cords with tassels. By its terms, England was to give up most conquests made in the wars, and France was to evacuate Naples and restore Egypt to the Ottoman Empire. England retained Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and Trinidad, but abandoned its claims to the French throne. The peace, though much acclaimed, lasted barely a year, and in 1803, England refused to restore Malta to the Knights Hospitallers, thereby causing a resumption in hostilities. For Treaty 9, we move to 1815 and Austria, the General Treaty of Congress of Vienna, which we can find in FO 93-11-15. Signed by Metternich for Austria, whose seal we can see enlarged, Talleyrand for France, Wellington and other plenipotentiaries, the Congress lasted from November 1814 to June 1815 and was designed to settle the many issues arising from the Napoleonic Wars and the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. 
The final act was signed on the 18th of June 1815, nine days before Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo. But among the many things is this declaration inserted into the Protocol of Congress on the 13th of March 1815. And it shows the urgency engendered by Napoleon's escape from Elba and his final hundred days. As a result, your next two slides have the translation. In translation, a declaration of the eight powers assembled in Congress. The powers who signed the Treaty of Paris, having reconvened at the Congress of Vienna, and having been informed of the escape of Napoleon Bonaparte and his arrival in France with an armed force, owe it to their dignity and the interests of the social order to make a solemn declaration of their feelings. In violating in this way the convention established on the Isle of Elba, Bonaparte is destroying the only legal title upon which his existence depends. In reappearing in France, with plans to foment confusion and disorder, he has placed himself outside the protection of the law and makes it plain to the world that there can be neither peace nor truth with him. The powers declare, in consequence, that Bonaparte has excluded himself from all civil and social negotiations, and that as an enemy and destroyer of world peace, he has incurred the public condemnation. At the same time, they declare that being firmly resolved to maintain in its entirety the Treaty of Paris of the 30th of May 1814, and the provisions sanctioned by this treaty, they will employ all means at their disposal and will combine in their efforts so that the general peace, which is the wish of Europe and the consistent goal of their, constant work, goal of their work, should not be troubled again and to ensure against all attempts that threaten to plunge the world back into the disorder and misfortune of revolution. Although they are convinced that the entire nation of France rallying around their legitimate sovereign will immediately destroy this last effort of a reprehensible and impotent madman, all the sovereigns of Europe, driven by the same feelings and guided by the same principles, declare that if, against all odds, any real danger was to occur from this event, they would be ready to give to the King of France and the French nation, or to any other government which was attacked upon request, all necessary assistance to re-establish peace and to make common cause against those who might try to compromise this peace. To me, that's running a little bit scared. They're very, very worried. For Treaty 10, we move to 1839 and Belgium, the ratification of the Treaty of Peace, which can be found in FO 94-54. This is a treaty that came to have greater importance later on. Known as the Treaty of London, and signed in London on the 19th of April 1839, this treaty guaranteed Belgian neutrality and the security of its borders. It was signed by plenipotentiaries from Austria, France, Prussia, Russia, the Netherlands, and the newly independent Kingdom of Belgium. This ratification was exchanged in London on the 8th of June 1839. It achieved renewed importance when Germany invaded Belgium in 1914 in violation of the treaty, and the British declared war on the 4th of August. The German Chancellor, Theobald von Bettmann-Holweg, was incredulous that Britain and Germany could be going to war over what he termed as a chiffon de papier, this scrap of paper. And the treaty has been subsequently termed the Scrap of Paper Treaty. We see the Royal Monogram of Belgium, a lion rampant stamped in gold, on outer boards covered in red velvet, with the royal arms in gilt metal. There are black and yellow ribbons, and there's a gilt metal skippet bearing the royal arms, golden, black, and red seal cords with tassels. As you can see from how ornate that is, how important it was to the newly independent nation of Belgium, because this is their ratification. For Treaty 11, we move to 1855 and Japan, the ratification of the Convention of Commerce, etc. FO 94-459. Officially, and again, quite a mouthful, it's the Convention with Japan for regulating the admission of British ships into the ports of Japan with exposition of articles of convention. 
more commonly known as the Anglo-Japanese Friendship Treaty. It was signed on the 14th of October 1854 in Nagasaki, and this ratification was exchanged at Nagasaki on the 9th of October 1855. The treaty opened up Japan to British trade. The British representative was Admiral Sir James Stirling and the governors of Nagasaki representing the Tokugawa shogunate. It's a green, purple, yellow and red silk cover with a paper lining of blown gold that can be seen on the right-hand side. Treaty 12, 1856, we move to Siam, the ratification of the Treaty of Friendship and Commerce, found in FO 94-492. Known as the Bowring Treaty, this opened up Bangkok to British trade and as other nations were quick to follow suit, to foreign trade and in return guaranteed Siam, later Thailand, independent sovereignty. It was signed on the 18th of April 1855 by Sir John Bowring, Governor of Hong Kong, and King Mongkut of Siam, and ratifications were exchanged at Bangkok on the 5th of April 1856. The treaty allowed free trade by foreigners in Bangkok, which had previously been subject to heavy royal taxes, and allowed for the establishment of consulates for the protection of foreign tradesmen and residents. The treaty is lined in gold and silver brocade with gold ribbons as a gilt skippet and gold seal cords with tassels. What I particularly like are the very nice red ink stamps. Treaty 13, 1863, we move to Denmark, the ratification of the Treaty of Marriage between the Prince of Wales and Princess Alexandra to be found in FO 94-552. The treaty signed at Copenhagen on the 15th of January 1863 was rapidly ratified at Copenhagen on the 4th of February. Albert Edward, Prince of Wales, and future Edward VII was the third of Queen Victoria's children to marry after his eldest sister, Princess Victoria, who married the future Frederick III of Prussia, and his younger sister, Alice, who married the Grand Duke of Hesse. Queen Victoria thought, falsely as it turned out, that a Europe linked by royal households related to one another would be a Europe less likely to go to war. Unfortunately, this didn't quite work out, but Edward VII, Bertie, affectionately as when he was the uh, Prince of Wales, did foster a closer entente with many European countries, especially with France, and had perhaps one might say a prescient view of how negotiations were proceeding with Germany. This treaty is on red velvet with royal arms stamped in gold. There's a silver skippet bearing a royal monogram on the obverse and the royal arms on the reverse. There are gold and red seal cords with tassels. For Treaty 14, we move forward just a year to 1864 and the Turkish ratification of the Treaty of Union of the Ionian Islands and Greece. It's in FO 94-573. Known as the Treaty of London, this treaty was signed at London on the 29th of March 1864. Under the terms of the treaty, Britain was to cede the Ionian Islands to Greece. And this is receiving the understanding of Turkey that this would happen. Britain had held the seven Ionian islands, or the Septinsular Republic, as a protectorate since 1815, and the islands comprised Corfu, Ithaca, Paxo, Cephalonia, Zante, Santa Maura, and Serigo. The British departed the Ionian islands on the 2nd of May 1864, but maintained Corfu as an important naval base. It's on red velvet with a crescent and star, stamped in gold. There are red ribbons binding the treaty and a gilt metal skippet bearing a star with gold and red seal cords and tassels. I mentioned a fair few Mediterranean islands. This was one of the things that was of particular importance for both trade and for the navy to patrol and maintain peace across the Mediterranean since after 1805 the British navy saw itself as supreme and the controller of the Mediterranean. We can see from this map how things are plotted out and how they relate back to the treaties. Beginning on the left-hand side, 
at the mouth of the Mediterranean at Gibraltar, formerly ceded in 1713, equally ceded in 1713, Minorca. Corsica was never acquired by treaty, but for a brief moment between 1794 and 1796, it was maintained by Britain, who stormed, bombarded and stormed Corsica and removed the French at the invitation of the Corsicans. Malta, taken by force in 1800 by the Royal Marines, it's reputed that the first person to touch Maltese soil and to storm Malta was Lord Nelson. And this we see the importance of with the treaties, given that it's the one that we refused, Britain refused, to return in 1802. The Ionian Islands ceded to Greece, as we saw in 1856, and finally Cyprus. So you can see how key these moments were and why they're enshrined within various treaties. We move ahead to 1866 and Persia, the ratification of a convention on telegraphic communication. It's in FO 93-75-6. The protocol of the treaty was signed on the 23rd of November 1865 and it was ratified at Tehran on the 1st of May 1866. Both protocol and ratifications are together in FO 93. Signed by Her Majesty Queen Victoria and Charles Allison, Her Majesty's Minister at the Court of Persia, and Shah Mirza Saeed Khan, King of all the Kingdoms of Persia. With a burgeoning empire, Britain was concerned about telegraphic communication to India. Undersea cables had not yet been established, so this treaty aimed to establish cables overland between India and the Ottoman territory. It's a paper book of 44 pages with a certificate of exchange and on each page a translation of Persian and in English. The boards are cover painted with a floral design, beautifully illuminated and finishes with an ink stamp seal. For Treaty No. 16, we move to 1878 and Turkey. The Convention of Defensive Alliance between Great Britain and Turkey with respect to the Asiatic provinces of Turkey. It's in FO 93-110-27b. Officially, the agreement with Turkey to give Her Majesty full powers for making laws and conventions for the government and regulation of Cyprus in Her Majesty's name and for the regulation of its commercial and consular relations and affairs free from the port's control. Again, quite a mouthful, so more commonly known as the Cyprus Convention. This treaty was signed in Constantinople on the 4th of June 1878, and under the terms of the treaty, the Ottoman Empire relinquished Cyprus to Britain in return for military support against the Russians and support for the Ottoman cause at the Congress of Berlin, which we are now coming to. Treaty 17, 1878, the German ratification of the Treaty of Berlin in FO 794-654. This treaty marked the conclusion of the Congress of Berlin, held from the 13th of June to the 13th of July 1878, and ratifications were exchanged at Berlin on the 3rd of August. Representatives of Britain, Austria, Hungary, France, Germany, Russia and the Ottoman Empire met to revise the Treaty of San Stefano regarding the balance of power in the Balkans. This treaty recognised the complete independence of Bohemia, Serbia and Montenegro, although the issue over the autonomy of Bulgaria is rather fudged. The skippet has the image of a knight on horseback with sword drawn and with the seal inset bears the imperial arms of Germany. It's on silver red and black cords with tassels. We move to 1898 and China, the ratification of the Convention for the Extension of Hong Kong Territory. This can be found in FO 94-839. Signed on the 9th of June 1898 with the ratifications exchanged at London on the 1st of August 1898, this treaty is known commonly as the Second Convention of Peking and gave Britain full legislation over the newly acquired land necessary to protect the colony of Hong Kong. The treaty granted Britain a 99-year lease of extra lands. In 1841, 
Britain had acquired Hong Kong, and in 1860, the Kowloon Peninsula. These weren't on a 99-year lease. But as the population steadily increased and encroachment into Chinese territory was made by other European powers, the need to expand to accommodate the growing population and to establish an effective cordon around Victoria Harbour became paramount. The treaty is on yellow silk within boards covered in yellow brocade, patterned in various colours and tied with yellow laces. Over the course of time, when the lease came up for the extra territories, it proved to be impossible to maintain Hong Kong under those circumstances, and so the whole lot was regarded in the same way and handed over at the same time. For Treaty 19, we get to 1902 in South Africa. Article for the Agreement of Secession of Hostilities. It's in FO 93-107-9. Also known as the Treaty of Vereningen, or the Peace of Vereningen, the treaty was signed in Pretoria on the 31st of May 1902. This peace treaty, ending the Second Boer War, was agreed between Lord Kitchener, Commander-in-Chief of the British Forces, and Lord Milner, High Commissioner of South Africa on the British side, and the Boer representatives Berger, Reiter, Bota, De La Rey, Meyer and Krug, being the acting government of the Republic, and Brebner, De Wett, Herzog and Olivier for the Free State. It's a paper book of four pages, all of which are up on the screen. I think, remembering 1783, ten articles laying out the agreement as to the terms of surrender of the Boer forces were included. They're summarised as follows. 1. All Berger forces in the field to lay down their arms. 2. Burgers outside the limit of Transvaal and the Orange River colony and all Burger prisoners of war who declare themselves as British subjects will be brought back to their homes and their means of subsistence ensured. 3. Burgers so surrendering or so returning will not be deprived of their personal liberty or their property. 4. Nor will civil or criminal proceedings be taken against them unless they have committed acts contrary to the conventions of war. 5. The Dutch language will be taught in public schools in Transvaal and Orange River Colony and in courts of law where necessary. 6. Firearms to be allowed in Transvaal and Orange River Colony for those who take out a licence. 7. The military administration in Transvaal and Orange River Colony to be replaced with a civil government as soon as possible. 8. The question of granting the vote to natives will not be decided until the introduction of self-government. 9. No special tax to be imposed on property in Transvaal or Orange River Colony to cover the expenses of war. Finally, 10. A commission to be set up to assist those displaced from their homes and provisions due to the war to be subsidised by His Majesty's Government to the tune of £3 million. Magnanimous in victory perhaps, but it's also setting various limits quite considerably. I'm going to finish Treaty 20 with one that is particularly poignant for me since my great-grandfather was on Titanic and lost his life. This is the ratification by King George V of a Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea and one finds it in FO94, ironically, slash 999-1. It's dated at the Court of St James on the 22nd of December 1914 with the ratification deposited on the 30th of December 1914. And it's the first version of the Convention of which newer versions were adopted in 1929, 1948, 1960 and 1974. And it was passed in response to the sinking of RMS Titanic. It prescribed the number of lifeboats and other emergency equipment that ships should carry, along with safety procedures, including 24-hour radio watches. Every ship should have lifeboat space for all on board, including crew. 
Poor old Frederick. It's a paperboard printed consisting of 68 pages bound with seal cords on a cover of blue leather decorated with the royal arms. And this is our own ratification that we've kept. Stamped in gold, it's in English with the text of the convention in French and signed George R.I. Rex Imperator. It bears the great seal bearing the royal arms of red wax appended on woven cords of red silk and silver bullion with tassels. So, that's the 20 treaties that I wanted to show you. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I have putting them all together. This event was recorded live on the 26th of November 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.